0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chalfas. Today, I'm talking about food labels. Are you confused about what's in the food you buy? You're not
1: alone. I have a lot of sympathy for consumers because at different times in history, for different reasons, certain things on the food label have become tightly regulated and very carefully defined. But other things on the food label have a very lackadaisical uh, regulatory
0: environment. Park Wildy is a professor who teaches U.S. food policy at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University in Boston. He and his colleagues have been looking closely at what consumers can work out from the labels about an important ingredient, whole grains. The scientific consensus is clear, whole grains are good for you, and you should try and ensure that at least half of the grain you eat is whole grain. But although there are regulations about what whole grain is, there are no rules about what a whole grain food is. As a result, manufacturers are free to make almost any claim on the package, as long as it isn't actually untrue so you can find all sorts of wording suggesting that this or that food does in fact deliver the benefits of whole grains
1: perhaps the variety that you mentioned is almost too much of a good thing the the labels mean very different things the for example um if you see something that says made with whole grains it means that there may be at least a little bit of whole grain content in it. It can still be predominantly refined grains. The consumers in general are widely misled by labels that say, for example, wheat or by the brown coloring of a particular product or by the label multigrain on it. None of those actually have any official <laughs> diagnostic ability to tell you that the product really contains whole grains.
0: So there's no federal, um, I'm not sure whether legislation is the right word, but there's no federal guidance that if it contains this, you can call it that in in the
1: case of whole grains? Well, in in fact, the federal guidance that applies is very general and very old. It's It's rules against misbranding your product. And so... If you were to say it contains whole grains when it didn't, the current law is quite capable of enforcing a prohibition against against that approach. But the issue isn't so much outright fibs. It's when it does contain some whole grain, but it doesn't actually have favorable health properties that the regulatory issues are a bit more delicate.
0: Yeah, so if it if it just contains, you know, 10% whole grains or something like that, it 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 might not might not be worth advertising except possibly to drive sales. That's exactly the issue. Okay, so
1: how did you go about investigating this? We used two approaches. Um one was a side-by-side comparison of hypothetical products. One of the products had a bit more whole grains and a bit less of something else like salt or sugar, and the other product had l- less whole grain and more of the unwanted nutrient or ingredient. But the one that was a little bit less favorable was labeled with a permitted uh whole grain label. So it might say multigrain, which doesn't necessarily say anything about whole grains, or it might have said contains whole grains because that's permitted even if there's not very much whole grains in it. And so we found that a substantial fraction of consumers d- essentially were guided more by the front of pack label that sort of hinted at whole grains rather than by reading the ingredient list or the nutrition facts panel. And we can be quite sympathetic because the nutrition facts panel doesn't actually tell you explicitly how much whole grains there are.
0: Hmm. So, so you asked them to to pick which was the healthier based... Wait, did you tell them what to look at or did you just present them with the the front of
1: pack label and the nutrition facts panel? That's correct. And the ingredients list. It turns out for whole grains that the ingredients list is in a way the most useful just because there's the simple rule that the ingredients list has to be presented in decreasing order of of contents.
0: That's interesting. I mean... do people know that is is that something people generally know that the the first item is the one that there's most of <laughs> i can't
1: tell you for sure, and even this is one of those issues where first thing is people who who are well informed in the area know more than a lay consumer does, but even experts get confused by whole grains whole <laughs> grains is one of the most challenging issues of the basic diet and health guidance to ascertain for yourself using a a food label. For example, uh, in the ingredients list, they will sometimes list flour as the first ingredient, and then there will be a parentheses with a long explanation of what the contents of the flour are, and then close parentheses, and then it'll go on. So it's actually more challenging than usual to read the uh, ingredients list when you're looking for whole grains content. So you presented
0: a cereal, some crackers, and some bread. Was there a difference um, among the different food classes as to whether f- people found it easier to to judge
1: the healthy one? Basically, I think with bread the challenge was worst of all. So the bread had the highest rate of consumer misunderstanding, and um, but but we saw substantial misunderstanding in all three categories. You, you've mentioned that. People have
0: difficulty in, in, I mean, clearly they show that they don't know, that they can't judge which is, which package contains the healthier food by, by your understanding. But can you break down w- what it is that they find difficult? I mean, is there any way to get at h- how they assess the, the, the accuracy of, of the labels?
1: This part of the study was done in a, what's called a using a discrete choice methodology where the analyst gets to vary the features of the products and then investigate. So there's kind of no limit to what one could in principle investigate using that type of approach. For for our study, all we looked at was the trade-offs that consumers were making between the information on the front of pack that explicitly said something that seemed to be related to whole grains versus the information on the nutrition facts panel and the ingredients list. The downside of that type of discrete choice comparison is that it has to be hypothetical products. You know, we couldn't take actual products and then give wrong information about what that nutrient content was. And to offset that shortcoming, we had the second part of the study, which asked information about consumer understanding of actual food labels. So we presented a number of of actual products and the actual food labels and asked what was the consumer's understanding of the whole grain content. And there too, we found a lot of people overstated the amount of whole grain content, especially on the products that didn't have much. And the problem with that approach is that you know you can't you can't uh, discern exactly what was the source of misunderstanding. So your question is how can you tell how can you tell what label feature it was that led people to be confused? And I can tell from your question that the part of the study that kind of meets that information goal best is the part with the side by side comparisons of hypothetical products.
0: So with the real products, they have different forms of label indicating that there may be good whole grains in. And you said that people consistently overestimate how much whole grain is in them. But what about when you have a product that really is whole grain? Um, if it, if it really is super whole grain, do they, do they realize that? Oh, no. They
1: can make the, they can make the error in the opposite direction as well. So, so we had, for example, a oat cereal. You know, a popular brand of oat cereal, and um that really was all whole grains. And you know, a substantial fraction thought there might not. You know, there, there. Consumers know to be on guard. It's just difficult to have your sense of caution <laughs> applied in a precise way.
0: In the United States, the main approved whole grain label you're likely to see on a product is the whole grain stamp. It actually looks a bit like a postage stamp. I'll put some pictures in the show notes in case you haven't seen it. And there are actually three stamps. One tells you that all the grains are whole grains and that there's at least 18 grams per serving. That's a third of the amount you're supposed to get each day. Three of those and you're good to go. Another stamp tells you that at least half of the grain content is whole grain and that there's at least half the recommended amount per serving. And then there's the basic stamp, which just tells you that there's a minimum of 8 grams of whole grain per serving and nothing at all about how much of the grain is whole grain. The whole grain stamp was developed by the Whole Grain's Council which is run by the not-for-profit Old Ways. And when Park Wildey and his colleagues' research appeared in Public Health Nutrition, the Whole Grain Council objected to some of the details. But the fact is that the Whole Grain stamp is a voluntary thing. If a manufacturer wants to use the stamp, they have to join the Whole Grain's council and pay an annual fee. So I have to ask, well, why wouldn't a food manufacturer want to use the stamp? Well, maybe because they deliberately want to bamboozle shoppers with a message like made with whole grains, which tells you very little about how much whole grain and absolutely nothing about the other ingredients. So you turn to the ingredients list, but that's not much help. It tells you the amount of fiber and Although fibres certainly one of the benefits of whole grains, it isn't the whole story. What Part Wildey would like to see, and maybe always should too, is a bit more stringency about the amount of whole grains, especially
1: for the basic stamp. That's exactly it. I think you know we're we're mostly researchers. We're not really policy advisors. But if we, to the extent that I've got any policy advice. It's that the whole grain implication shouldn't be used on products that don't actually have a whole lot of whole grain. And a good standard is that whole grain claims shouldn't be used on products that are predominantly refined grain. That's like a nice, simple, simple threshold. And the the old ways, um, whole grain stamps. The best of them are really terrific. For example, you know, one of the stamps says that the product is 100% whole grain. That's clearly highly informative to a consumer. Um, <laughs> another one of the stamps, which, you know, and the, th- this is for industry voluntary adoption. So a lot of, a lot of companies will adopt the less stringent whole grain stamp. So one of the less stringent one indicates that the product contains whole grains and it's a basic stamp. And in order to put that label on your product, you have to have had at least eight grams of whole grains per serving. So it's not like you can put the old way stamp on a product that has no significant whole grains, but you know, the standards are not that high.
0: Yeah. Would 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 fifty one percent satisfy you in every case? Or um,
1: is is there a simple metric? I um oh boy. I, I sometimes I almost wish policymakers would ask me and make me powerful on something like that. But I really am quite powerless. But yeah, probably off the top of my head, fifty one percent sounds satisfactory. If a product is predominantly whole grains, it satisfies a slogan that comes from the Federal Dietary Guidance System, which says people should be encouraged to make at least half their grains whole. So this slogan means, you know, no more than half of, of your total grain consumption in an ideal diet should be made from refined grains. And so the, the, it's, you know, you, you talk about a threshold between, um, 50% and 51%. And it sounds like splitting hairs, but in fact, that's kind of a nice, reasonable threshold.
0: <laughs> um, one of the interesting things is your study and many, many other studies that I've read talk about choices and um, information and um, the way consumers perceive what they're shown but when you get down to it in in the store at the checkout line what's the evidence that labels front of pack labels nutrition fact panels what's the evidence that they actually affect people's behavior in what they choose to buy?
1: You know, the different, different studies have different tools that they can use. It's possible to do studies in the field where you modify labels and, uh, actually investigate how much does sales change. That generally requires participation from either a manufacturer or a, a retail partner. And so there's, I don't, I don't know of an exact study like that on, The whole grains labels, but there is literature like that on labeling generally. The other thing that can be done is you can use sort of an intermediate setting, like a mock-up of an online food ordering system. And I think that that's got a good deal of potential. It's sort of a compromise between the ability as a researcher to modify something that's expensive to change, like a food label, but at the same time, it's got more realism than asking consumers hypothetical questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think what, one of the interesting things that comes out of all of this in, in all countries that are trying to do something is it, it sort of, it takes two to tango. You, you, government can legislate for different kinds of labels. But at the same time, consumers have to know what those labels mean and, If they wish, make decisions based on what the labels mean. Do you think there's, um, do you think that there's a balance there uh, between telling industry what kinds of labels it must adopt? And on the other hand, informing consumers of what those
1: labels mean? Definitely. So the consumer education part of this is essential. And that's true. Under a completely laissez-faire system where there's not very strict labeling rules because the consumer has to have a buyer-beware attitude. But it's still true, Jeremy, even if there's a strong labeling regimen. Um, even with strong labels, consumers still have to have some sense of what the, what the labels mean. And so the goal is to keep the labeling rules simple enough that we really could imagine explaining them to consumers. I have a lot of sympathy for consumers, because how could a consumer possibly know which which of the claims that they see are strongly defined and which ones are only loosely, loosely enforced? Like... The organic label on a food label has a very strict set of criteria that the producer has to follow in order to be declared organic. But natural, um, natural has a much looser definition. It, 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 it's a fairly mild, uh, standard that, that the company has to follow. And you can put natural on a very wide variety of products, some of which a reasonable consumer would not think is natural.
0: So what's the future then for getting consumers for helping? I shouldn't be so paternalistic. What's the future for helping consumers to make choices that are better for their health, given that they're kind of up against an industry that doesn't necessarily have the
1: same goals? I I think at present, for example, on whole grains, consumers should have a skeptical attitude. They should be aware, essentially, that the companies are willing to mislead them. And that's a hard thing to say. On some things in labeling, it, there's a tradition of thinking of strong labeling rules as being an anti-industry position. You know, the, the sense is that if you're in favor of public health nutrition rules that strongly enforce strict definitions about what goes on the food label, You must kind of be against the companies. And I don't think that's correct. I think over and over again in the history of U.S. food policy, it has happened that the companies themselves find themselves suffering from a very challenging level of consumer skepticism. And when that happens, it's hard for the companies even to market healthy products and so sometimes it happens that legislation that has stronger consumer protections on labeling passes in a setting where some of the consumer organizations and some of the industry organizations found themselves working together. And what brought the industry organizations to the table is a sense that unless we agree to some of these demands for strict definitions on some of these labeling features, consumers are going to react to such a strong extent that they're going to think we're just lying to them all the time, even though it's not true. And so I think there really is potential for the adults in the room to um, come up with sensible, reasonably simple definitional provisions that are protective of consumers without being ridiculously patronizing or paternalistic. Do you have an example of that? I feel like there's lots of examples, and they make me sad from time to time, The labels for what counts as free-range on eggs, for example, are wildly confusing. So this is an example of one of the areas of food labeling that's not all that well-defined. And a number of years ago, the United Egg Producers and the Humane Society of the United States, so an animal welfare organization, Sat down and negotiated reasonable terms for these labels. Just what would count as free rage and what would count as, as, you know, humanely raised, uh, eggs. And the policy never passed Congress because there was too much concern from other major animal industries, such as the pork industry and, and others that we're worried that this was going to set a bad precedent. You know, if the egg producers can reach an agreement with the Humane Society, what are people going to expect from gestation crates for pigs, right? You know, uh, uh, it seemed like a dangerous precedent. So as a result, even though it had an industry consumer organization compromise on the table, uh, we still don't have any rules like that for free range.
0: In that respect, I suppose we should be grateful for the whole grain stamps. My thanks to Park Wildey for taking the time to talk to me about his research and labels more generally. It's definitely a confusing topic, that's for sure, and I'd love to hear about your favourite food labels, misleading or otherwise. Drop a line to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. As I said at the outset, I'll share pictures of the whole grain stamps and some of the choices Park Wilde and his colleagues showed to their panellists. See if you can decide which offers better nutrition. All that will be at eatthispodcast.com, where you can also find an archive of all past episodes. They include one from 2017, when Park Wilde and I talked about the cost of a nutritious diet. There's also a form on the website that allows you to support the podcast with a one-off donation or a subscription, should you be so inclined. Donations help to keep the lights on, and they enable me to offer a transcript of the episode, though that isn't normally available until a few days after the show itself. There's only so much one person can do. My thanks to everyone who's already a supporter, and thanks to you for listening. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks, and until then, from me, Jeremy Cherfus, and a podcast, goodbye.